Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for the opportunity of being with you and opening God's book with you this morning. And I wonder, as we come together, if we come together with some sense of expectation, or we expect it to be same old, same old. And I think sometimes we gather together as God's people, and we hear the word of God, but really we don't expect anything to change. We're going to be just the same, live the same kind of life. Well, this morning can be something quite different. As we open our hearts to the Lord and we say, Lord, touch me, mold me and make me different. And so we come with a spirit of expectation, and it ought to be that time whenever we open the word of God, we open it with open hearts and open ears. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, before we actually open the scriptures together, I'd just like to make a comment, and it's along this line. I think sometimes in evangelical churches such as this one, we can become very frustrated because as a result of the preaching and as a result of the fellowship and the conversations and so on, we become very highly motivated and we want God to use us, but we're not quite sure how. And so it can be that we sit in our pews and we're motivated. We want God to use us, but how? And as younger people, we want God to use our lives, but how do we start? Well, I'd like to suggest two things. You want to grow your faith. And I'd like to mention two things that can help you grow your faith. Because, you see, we grow intellectually when we learn, and we also grow experientially when we do what we learn. So there are two things. When I was here last time, which was several months ago, Luke Williamson gave a very strong promo for late learning. Well, these brochures have just come out. And in January, you can meet with us in or near not in Lake Taupo, near Lake Taupo, and you'll hear lectures from about half past eight in the morning through to five o'clock in the afternoon, varied speakers, and this will be the third year it's been hurled, and what we find is the vast majority want to come back the next year. We invite you to take one of these, and we would like to see every one of you come, and you can grow in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing I'd like to mention to you is work among Aboriginals in Australia. Gwenda and I have just come back from a place called Redcliffe, which is just north of Brisbane. It's a pretty amazing place. Gwenda and I had the privilege of serving the church there for quite a while. And one of their ministries, they actually employ 400 people plus in their different ministries. It is huge. And by the way, it was Jack who encouraged them in the early 1980s to follow their vision. And today it's just amazing. One of the ministries is reaching out to Aboriginal communities, just bought a $100,000 truck, and they go out to these communities and they preach the gospel. And there's a bit of a revival going on among the Aboriginal people. Now, if you would like to know more, there are a number of these little booklets at the door and it will change your life and it'll help you grow, you see. It's good to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, but that's not enough. We actually have to put into practice what we learn. If we want to grow, we don't just grow our Bible knowledge, we want to grow our faith and our walk of faith. There are two things that may help you. 
Now, if you attend this church regularly, you know that you're working through the Gospel of Luke, and the various speakers are given a chapter. I was given chapter 14. So I would like to speak this morning on the subject, Who Would Be a Disciple? Now, it's not a brand new subject to me. A number of years ago, I wrote this book, which is actually called Who Would Be a Disciple? And this is a different kind of approach. And that, in fact, I haven't read this book since 1981 when it was published. But anyway, I thought, if I can't borrow from myself, who can I borrow from? Yeah. So anyway, we want to take that as a subject. And shortly, we'll open ourselves to the Word of God. There are some things that are worth giving our lives to and giving our lives for. I was reading the story of a 4th century monk by the name of Telemachus. He had served God in a remote area of Italy, but he felt that God was actually calling him to Rome. He had never been to Rome before. I mean, in those days, they didn't have the communications that we have today, and he didn't know why God was calling him to Rome, but he went to Rome. And when he arrived at that massive city, he actually found that there was a great crowd of people surging towards somewhere, and he thought, maybe this is why the Lord has brought me. Maybe I ought to go with a crowd. And he went with a crowd, and he found himself at a Colosseum. He knew nothing about gladiator fights, nothing like that. He was just a little monk who lived in a remote part of Italy. But he saw these men trying to kill each other in these contests. And the little monk, he couldn't stand it anymore. He couldn't run away. There was too much savagery. He didn't want to stay, but what he did was jump onto the perimeter fence and in front of the great crowd he called out, for the love of Christ, stop. And of course, they started to jeer. They took no notice of him. He jumped down into the sandy bit there in the Colosseum, and again he said, for the love of Christ, stop. They thought at first that it was part of the entertainment, and they laughed, and then they realized that he was serious. And so one of the gladiators got out a sword and cut him across the chest and across the face, and he fell down on the ground almost dead, and his blood oozing out onto the sands of the Colosseum. But with his last breath he said, for the love of Christ, stop. Something happened that was amazing. Slowly and quietly they began to leave the Colosseum. There are a number of forces, of course, at work at that time, but his call and his death actually crystallized feeling against the matter, the inhumane sport of the gladiator contests. Never since that time have they shed human blood as entertainment in the Colosseum because somebody gave his life for a cause, and the cause was Christ. With that in mind, we take the Holy Scriptures and we turn to Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them. Otherwise, I'll try to be accurate in the way I read it. Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, 
his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We find that our Lord was, we would say, at a height of popularity and large crowds were following Jesus. And he had just taught them the parable of the great banquet and in the parable of the great banquet, he was saying that God's desire is that his house should be full. And we remember the words of Peter when he says that God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. But he also says as he comes to the end of this parable that people have the right to say no and some people got the invitation to attend the banquet. They said no and we today still have the opportunity of saying no and many do. The majority do. I mean after all the road to heaven is narrow and the gate is narrow. And so the crowds are hanging on the words of Jesus and he speaks to the large crowd and somehow it seems that he's not interested in numbers because, after all, God is not a coal merchant. He's a diamond manufacturer. And to this large crowd, he doesn't try to make it easy. He actually says, there are certain people who cannot be my disciple. And he lays down the condition for being a disciple. I want you to imagine with me this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that we are back 2,000 years and we're there in Palestine and we're listening to this preacher who's come from Galilee. Jesus is his name. And we're in that large crowd and we hang on his every word and what he says is amazing. We've never heard teaching like this man teaches. And when he speaks to us, we understand that his teaching shocks us. Because as we stand in that huge crowd, probably nobody realizing that we're there, we hear this master preacher say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Imagine that we're interested in this preacher 
We are interested in what he does. I mean, he makes the blind to see. He makes the lame to walk. And he teaches as no one has ever taught before. And we are very interested, but we're shocked when we hear him say that unless we hate our relatives and even our own life, we cannot be his disciple. I mean, we follow Jesus, let us imagine, for some period of time now. And we know that he teaches love. He actually teaches us that we're to love one another and we're to te- and he teaches that, that we're to love our enemies. We may have heard of his conversation with Nicodemus when he said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And now he says to us, we must hate these relatives. Is this the same man? What does he mean? One of his early followers, Paul, when he's writing to the church, he says to the church, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, in early Christianity, we had to, in a practical way, love our relatives. Then what does Jesus actually mean? So at first glance, and upon first hearing what our Lord says, we think surely something's wrong, or we need to really understand what he's saying. What he's saying is this. I must be Lord of your life, and I must have first place. If you go to the New Living Translation, which tries to explain what people understood, not merely what was said, it is translated this way, you must hate everyone else by comparison. In other words, you love God, you love me, and I'm the Lord of your life, and you're to put me first. And if you don't, You can't be my disciple. Shortly we'll be breaking bread together and be drinking wine in memory of this Jesus. And as we do that, we remind ourselves that he deserves to be Lord, doesn't he? I mean, after all, he's the one who died for us. And he's the one who rose for us. And he's the one who made us sons and children of God. I mean, he deserves to be Lord, doesn't he? A man known to the world as St. Augustine, when he was preaching to his congregation, on one occasion he says, does not the Lord deserve to have you as his trustworthy slave? They say, yeah, he does. He came and he died and he rose again and he's coming back for me. Yeah, he deserves to be my Lord. And that is precisely what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying. The earliest creed of the Christian church, you actually find it three times in the New Testament, is a very simple creed, and it says, Jesus Christ is Lord. You become a believer in Jesus, and that's what you learn to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But you see, it's more than just reciting a creed, it's actually meaning it. Now, as you worked through the Gospel of Luke, maybe you heard someone preaching on the subject when our Lord says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke chapter 6, verse 46. 
we're to give him first place, do we? Or is it merely words? We're told to esteem one another, but do we? Or is it just words? And we're told to forgive one another, or do we? Or is it just words? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's hypocrisy. You know, disciple, if you do not put into practice what Jesus actually teaches. And that's what he's saying. Now, the commitment to Christ is actually lifelong. The Apostle Paul, some years later, writing to churches, a church like this, people like us, he actually says to them, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. In other words, says Paul, when you became a believer, you said, Jesus Christ from this moment on is the Lord of my life. I'm a disciple. And Paul says, now as you began that way, make sure you don't lose that zeal, make sure you don't lose that commitment and you continue to live in him. He continues to be your Lord. And again, the question is, is that true? Or is it just words? And it's very possible, ladies and gentlemen, to come together as we do this morning and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers and we follow the readings, but it's all verbal. No reality. We're no different from what we would be. We live in no different way than if we were unbelievers. Now, one of the encouraging things, of course, is that we don't make him Lord because he's Lord already. And irrespective of what our response to him is, as Peter says, let all Israel know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And whether we accept him as Lord of our lives individually or not, he is Lord of everything. But you can imagine as you stand with that crowd and you're shocked by what Jesus says and you think about it and you say, yes, he deserves to be number one. He deserves to be Lord. I deserve, he deserves for me to give everything that I am to him. And everything else, by comparison, pales. And then we find that his teaching informs us. He says in verse 27, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Notice that, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Some of you know the name Hudson Taylor. He was a very well-known missionary in his day and subsequent to his death. We still quote, as I do this morning, Hudson Taylor. And on one occasion he said, an easygoing non-self-denying life will never be one of power. If you want your life to be influential in bringing men and women to Christ, building them up, encouraging them, then you have to know what it is to live a self-denying life. 
Whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The most common name or even description for a Christian in the New Testament is the word disciple. Go through the Gospels and Acts and you find 264 times our Lord describes people like us as disciples. Some of you know New Testament Greek. I'm not trying to sound smart or anything, but I just happen to know that mathetes is the word that's translated disciple, and it's the word from which we get our word mathematics. And a disciple literally means a learner. And so if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you become a learner, and that is lifelong. I mean, Peter, when he's talking to people like us, he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just for young people, it's for people like me. It's for old people. We can still grow in grace, and we can still grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how it ought to be if we are disciples of Jesus. My parents and my two older brothers were brought to the Lord through a man called Enoch Coppin. Some of you know the name. We lived in Palmerston North in those days, and Enoch was an evangelist, and he put up a tent on the corner of Featherston and Wood Street in Palmerston North. It was an empty lot in those days. They put up a tent, and during the course of the preaching by Enoch Coppin and his friend James Clapham, my parents, my family came to the Lord shortly after I did. I was just a little boy. But I like this quote. Well, it's not actually a quote. I'm quoting Enoch Coppin. In one of his little books, he says, a disciple is someone who learns to follow and follows to learn. And so when you became a believer, you learned to follow Jesus. But now, as mature Christians, you are following to learn. And that's one reason we come to church on Sunday and other times. Of course, we come to remember the Lord in the way that he decreed, but we also come that we might grow. And I don't know any realistic Christian who says, whoops, I'm there, I'm perfect. We're not perfect, are we? I've never heard a Christian actually say I'm perfect. We've all got room to grow. And so our Lord actually explains to us that to follow Christ is not easy. It sometimes is a burden. It's like a cross. Now, for us, of course, that's almost romantic, and women wear crosses as ornaments. They wear them as necklaces. But in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, crucifixion was a hideous death, and you wouldn't even use the word crucifixion if you could avoid it. Our Lord, when he was a little boy, he would see people carrying their cross to the place of crucifixion. It was an idea that was brought up by the Phoenicians, thought up by the uh, Phoenicians, taken over by the Romans, and they had the idea that you had to actually show people what would happen if they rebel against the government, and so they would crucify people. And they crucified, the Romans crucified thousands of people. There were three types of cross that they used. One was simply a stake, sharpened at one end, thrust through the body, impaled. Another was a, in the form of a T-shape, capital T, sometimes called 
the St. Anthony's cross. And then there was the Latin cross, which is what we understand, which is almost certainly the shape of the cross that our Lord Jesus died on for you, and he died on it for me, and we're going to remember that in this way very shortly. At the foot of the cross, or close to the bottom of the cross, they had a little saddle called a sedila, and was placed there so that the person being crucified couldn't slip off the cross, but it would also prolong the agony. And of course, even as I say it, some of you are beginning to think of the Scriptures when Paul, again, is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what he says, Your attitude shall be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Exclamation mark. Now, of course, you know that in Greek there's no exclamation mark, but that's the meaning. Even death? On a cross. So when our Lord says, if you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross, it was a very vivid picture. And for some people in the Middle East now, it's a very vivid thing. And you've heard, and I've heard, and we've been shocked to hear of Christians who have been crucified just in the last few months. But for us, it's something remote. And what it means is, to take up the cross means that we face and accept any difficulty that comes our way because we're followers of Jesus. Perhaps you're the only believer in your family, and that's quite difficult. But you accept that because you're a disciple. Or maybe you go to work tomorrow morning and you're ridiculed by your workmates because you're a disciple. Or you go to university and you find that people ridicule you because you believe the Bible. And that's because you're a disciple. And it could be that you're married to an unbeliever and it breaks your heart. And you wish that your husband or your wife came to, would come to Christ and it tears you apart. And that's because you're a disciple and you're carrying that cross. You're accepting that difficulty because you follow Jesus. As we listen to what our Lord Jesus is saying on that sun-kissed day, we also find that his teaching cautions us. He said, if you're going to follow me, just think of a man who's going to build a tower, or you think of somebody who's going to go to war, and when they're going to make a serious commitment, they're very thoughtful about it. They don't do it like that. They think about it because they know it's going to be costly. Maybe, maybe there's someone here this morning and you have never accepted Christ. There's never been a time when you've opened your heart to Christ and say, be Lord of my life. I accept you now. I believe in you. Maybe it's never happened in your life. Why don't you make the decision this morning to accept the Lord? I mean, if it's not going to be here, where will it be? If it's not going to be now, when will it be? 
But you must be thoughtful about it. You don't just say, oh yeah, I'll come forward and I'll make some profession and then give up. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He said when you're going to build a tower or you're going to go to war, you think about it. Now, as you've gone through the Gospel of Luke, maybe somebody took, when they were taking Luke chapter 9, these words of Jesus. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words... We're going to sleep rough tonight, guys. It's not easy being a disciple. And so that cautions us against making some kind of flippant comment that we're going to accept Jesus and then we give up tomorrow. It doesn't mean that at all. So his teaching cautions us and his teaching also alerts us. He says, in the same way, that is, in the same way as builders and warriors think carefully about their commitment, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, that's another tough one. What does it actually mean to give up everything that we have? It seems to be an outrageous kind of prohibition insofar as we have to give up everything. How do we understand it? Well, of course... You have to get the, the context, the literal context. Our Lord Jesus is actually walking the dusty, sometimes muddy roads of Israel. If you want to follow this preacher from Galilee, you have to leave everything behind. There's no way you could follow him and stay at home. You had to actually leave everything, literally, to follow him. And as you went through the Gospel of Luke, you may have noticed, for example, when we read about James and Simon and John, and it says in Luke chapter 5, they pulled up their boats, they pulled them up on shore, left everything and followed him. In Luke 9, it talks about Matthew. He got up and he left everything and followed him. And Peter, on one occasion, was wondering whether it's all worthwhile, and he says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And of course they had to, because there's no way you could follow Jesus through the streets and roads of Israel without leaving everything behind. You had to do that. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, I think there's a difference between following Jesus as we do today. It's real, just as real, but it's not literal. You can follow Jesus in the career that you're in. You can follow him inhabiting the house that you own, so you don't have to leave everything, and you don't have to give away everything. You see, there's a difference between giving up and giving away. 
Now, there are a lot of people who give away everything. I think of a person like Anthony Norris Groves. It was our privilege to work in Queensland for some time, and they started a college called Mueller College, named after George Mueller, and the next one they named after a man called Anthony Norris Groves. Groves was the first Brethren missionary. Reading the biography of Groves, you actually find that he thought he was a waste of space. He thought that he was a useless kind of individual, saw very little for what he did. But now, 150 years later, there's a big college, a thousand students named after Anthony Norris Groves. But he's one of those who sold everything and left Jesus. And saying goodbye is sometimes a big part of being a disciple of Jesus. But for most of us, it actually isn't a matter of giving away everything, but giving up everything if the Lord wants it. And it means that we give up ownership of what we have. It means that now we're not the owner of what we have, but we're the stewards of what we have. And we hold our treasures, our possessions, on the open palm of our hands. So if the Lord says, I want it, he takes it. We don't keep our things like this. We say, Lord, thank you. I enjoy it. But if you want it, it's yours. And finally, we find that his teaching challenges us. And he says this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, it, um, it can be, uh, sorry, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. In other words, if we lose our saltiness, our flavor, our zest, and our commitment to Christ, how can Christ use us? He can't. And if salt loses its flavor, what can you do with it? Nothing. You throw it out. You can't fertilize your fields with it. You can do nothing. And the, the challenge to us is this. This morning, as we stand and we sit here this morning, the challenge is, have I lost my zest? Have I lost my commitment to Christ? Have I lost my zeal to follow Jesus? And you may have been attending this church for 50 years, 20 years, but have lost that commitment. And you say, yeah. I've lost my flavor. I'm not making an impact for Jesus anymore, but I want to. Now, I think every born-again believer wants to be useful. We don't want to go altogether useless out of this world. So the question is, if I want God to use me, what do I do? And the first thing is, exclude from your life anything that damages your spiritual usefulness. Last night, were you involved in anything that damaged your spiritual usefulness? Or during the work at week, during the week at work, did you somehow lose your witness and your testimony and effectiveness for Christ? The Apostle Paul says this In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. 
Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And then you study and you take seriously the things that we've been talking about this morning Conditions that Jesus laid down, not me, not your elders, not some other Bible teacher, not your parents, but Jesus Christ the Lord, lay them down. Make a study of them this week. Think about them. Pray them into your life. And then repair as best you can any damaged relationships. I mean, if you go through life locking horns with people all the time, and making enemies wherever you go, you can't be effective for the Lord. And if you're aware of some kind of disruption of your relationship with a Christian friend, do something today and keep your consecration alive. Paul, do not offer any part of yourself to sin, but as an instrument of... sorry. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather <coughs> offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. How long since you did that? Why don't you do it today? When you go home or this afternoon, why don't you set aside half an hour, an hour, open Bible, open heart, and say, Lord, I'm yours. I haven't given myself to you again for a long, long time, but take these hands and use them. And this mind that you've given me, please use it. And the gifts that you've given me, please use them to extend your kingdom. And right now I'm going to invite you to respond to what Jesus teaches and pray something like this. Lord, you know me through and through. You know how I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Even though I am aware of my weakness, I again give myself to you in an act of consecration. Please keep me close to your Son, and please use me to bring praise to you. So we'll just take 20 seconds now, quietly, no razzmatazz, no great show, but just in your heart, respond to the Word of God. If these don't, respect, uh, don't represent how you feel, don't pray them, but pray how you feel before the Lord. Let's just take 20 seconds to pray individually, responding to the whisper of the Spirit as He's spoken to us here this morning. Jesus is in the room. The Spirit is speaking to our hearts. Let's not neglect his call, not, let's not leave it for another day, but right now let's respond. 20 seconds. Lord, you've heard every heart You've heard every cry. You've heard every aspiration that I presented to you in the name of your Son, who by your grace is our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to accept the Lord this morning, I'll come forward here. I'll be here at the end of the service.
If you like to chat to me, I'd love to chat to you. Or maybe you'd just like someone to pray with you. It doesn't have to be big. It can be something small. It doesn't have to be sad. It can be something really happy. But you'd like someone to pray with you. I'll be available, and I'm sure there are others who will be available. But don't put it off. Make sure that your heart is right with God this morning. Try to have your questions answered. We're here to serve you. We're here to help you. May the Lord bless you.